The reading is from the first letter of Peter, chapter 2, verses 11 to 17, and is on page 1218 of the Church Bibles. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honour the King. This is the word of the Lord. Good. Well, rather than explain the passage we had read, I'm just going to show how the Queen's life illustrates it. That's where I think she draws her inspiration for the kind of uh, uh, public service she is given throughout her whole life. So today it's the Queen's faith on her 90th birthday. And even if you happen to have Republican sympathies, um, I'm sure you'd have to acknowledge that um, Her Majesty, who is the longest uh, serving monarch in our nation's history, has amply fulfilled her job description as our sovereign under Christ, as we'll see. So let's just remind ourselves this morning of three things. Um, Ah, she's there now, good. Um, Right, and um, yes, just, uh, um, it's a bit odd having the Queen kind of peering down over here. (laughs) When you're ordained and whenever you start a new job as a vicar, you have to swear allegiance to the Queen, you know, which isn't a requirement of most jobs. So, um, do my best, Mom. Um, Right, just a few facts about her life, then a few features of the faith that she holds dear, and how how she has been faithful to the oaths that she took at her coronation on the 2nd of June, 1953, which was before I was born, just. Um, (laughs) So a few facts about her life. First of all, she was an unlikely queen Um, She was not expected to become queen. She was the first child of the Duke and Duchess of York, and as such, Elizabeth stood third in line to the throne after her uncle, Edward, Prince of Wales, who became Edward VIII. However, he wished to marry uh, Wallace Simpson, and uh, she was a twice-divorcee American, and he abdicated, and so her father became King George. And so she, at the age of 10, then became first in line to the throne after her father. 
Well, she became engaged to uh, Philip Mountbatten, who uh, was created His Royal Highness the Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, in 1946, though apparently the formal engagement was delayed until Elizabeth turned 21 in April 47. And the then princess used her ration coupons. Now, after, you know, during the war and after it, for quite a long time after it, even when I was a one-year-old, apparently, you know, there were ration coupons for things like sweets. Now, there were rations for materials, and uh, both mater fabric materials and ingredients. And she used her ration materials to buy, uh, ration coupons to buy material for her wedding dress, would you believe? They were married in November 47. According to the Independent newspaper, because of rationing, the couple's wedding cake was made using ingredients given as a wedding present by the Australian Girl Guides. The cake was baked by McVitie's, who I think were in Reading. She's been a working mother, but she does have quite a bit of what I believe in those kinds of circles is described as a little help in the home. The Queen and her husband, of course, have four children. Prince Charles and Prince Anne were born before she became Queen. And uh, Prince Andrew and Prince Edward were obviously born subsequently. The year 1992 spelled disaster for the Queen. A fire broke out in Windsor Castle and the respective marriages of three of her children, Charles, Andrew and Anne, all broke down. The Queen deemed this her Annus Horribilis horrible year. The Queen has answered more than three and a half million items of correspondence during her reign so far. She sent more than 180,000 telegrams to centenarians in the UK and the Commonwealth. She's also sent over half a million telegrams to couples in the UK and the Commonwealth who are celebrating their diamond wedding anniversary. She's penned more than 50,000 Christmas cards and given upwards of 90,000 Christmas puddings away. She has, of course, a love of corgis, apparently the only, I learnt last night, the only kind of uh, animate kind of being in the room when she has her weekly audience with the Prime Minister, or he has his weekly audience with her, really. It's that way around. The only other people that, well, they're not people, the only other things there are the corgis, apparently. So, as John Major said on telly last night, they're privy to all the state secrets. Well, the first corgi she had was given to her when she was 18 in 1944, and the corgi was called Susan and accompanied her on her honeymoon to Broadlands, just outside Romsey. And since then, uh, most of her corgis have been the descendants of this one called Susan. She has, as I said... She has a weekly meeting with the Prime Minister. Her first Prime Minister was Sir Winston Churchill. Um, I'm sure you can recite the list. And she now meets with David Cameron on a Wednesday evening. Harold Wilson, who was Prime Minister in the uh, late 60s and uh, mid-70s, famously said that he enjoyed his meetings with the Queen because she was the only person he met who wasn't after his job and the only person he knew who wouldn't leak what he said. <laughs> um, 
She is our 40th monarch since uh, William the Conqueror was crowned Christmas Day in 1066. And only five other kings and queens in British history have reigned for 50 years or more. You could probably tell me who they are, couldn't you? I wonder whether you'd do better than the kids if I were to ask you. So why don't I try it? Let's try and see if you know who the five monarchs are who've reigned more than 50 years. The easiest one... Victoria, right, well done, that's the easiest. That's right, the one who went mad. Um, okay, change the names a bit, and then you've got to get the right number. Yeah, it gets harder then, doesn't it, really? Well, it's Henry III, Edward III, and then James, who was James VI of Scotland, who became James I of England. Well, right. Well, the kids do better than you. Right. <laughs> now a few features about her faith that she holds. The Queen doesn't reveal very much about what she thinks about a whole host of subjects. But about her trust in Christ, she has been open, clear, and direct. And here are ten quotes, mostly from her Christmas um, addresses. Um that she gives each year to our nation and to the Commonwealth. And they show, they show something about the importance of her relationship with Christ and how that strengthens her and shapes the way in which she lives and the way in which she works as the monarch. First of all, putting her service in the hands of God. In 1947, when she was 21, she did a radio broadcast and she said this, I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and to the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. But I shall not have strength to carry out this resolution alone unless you join it with me, as I now invite you to do. I know that your support will be unfailingly given. God help me to make good my vow. And God bless all of you who are willing to share it. Then the only way to live her life. I know just how much I rely on my faith to guide me through the good times and the bad. Each day is a new beginning. I know that the only way to live my life is to try to do what is right to take the long view, to give of my best in all that the day brings, and to put my trust in God. 2002. And then, why Jesus is unique. Although we are capable of great acts of kindness, history teaches us that we sometimes need saving from ourselves, from our recklessness or our greed. God sent into the world a unique person, Neither a philosopher nor a general, important though they are, but a saviour with power to forgive. 2011. And what sustains her in difficult times, in her horribilis? To many of us, our beliefs are of fundamental importance. For me, the teachings of Christ and my own personal accountability before God provide a framework in which I try to lead my life. I, like so many of you, have drawn great comfort in difficult times 
from Christ's words and example, 2000. And how Christ is the inspiration in her life, in 2014. For me, the life of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, whose birth we celebrate today, is an inspiration and an anchor in my life, a role model of reconciliation and forgiveness. He stretched out his hands in love, acceptance and healing. Christ's example has taught me to seek, to respect and value all people of whatever faith or none. God's gift of reconciliation in 1976, a particularly uh, difficult uh, time. The gift I would most value next year is that reconciliation should be found wherever it is needed. A reconciliation which would bring peace and security to families and neighbours at present suffering and torn apart. Remember that good spreads outwards and every little does help. Mighty things from small beginnings grow as indeed they grew from the small child of Bethlehem. And then she points out that Jesus gives us strength to follow him. Christ not only revealed to us the truth of his teachings, he lived by what he believed and gave us the strength to try to do the same. And finally on the cross, he showed the supreme example of physical and moral courage. And how God restored love to our lives through Jesus. This is the time of year when we remember that God sent his only son to serve, not to be served. He restored love and service to the centre of our lives in the person of Jesus Christ, 2012. And the challenge to Christian discipleship in 1980, the year after the... Uh, the biggest bomb attack on British troops in Northern Ireland, who killed 18 of them, and also at the same day uh, how the provisional IRA blew up a fishing boat in which uh, Lord Mountbatten, her cousin, was one of those who was killed, along with a couple of teenage lads. In difficult times, we may be tempted to find excuses for self-indulgence and to wash our hands of responsibility. Christmas stands for the opposite. We need to go out and look for opportunities to help those less fortunate than ourselves, even if that service demands sacrifice. And final quote, why no one is beyond God's love in 2013. For Christians, reflection, meditation and prayer help us to renew ourselves in God's love as we strive daily to become better people. The Christmas message shows us that this love is for everyone. There is no one beyond its reach. So we've seen some facts about her life some features about her faith 
and now how she's been faithful to the oaths that she took at her coronation in uh, June 1953. And it's from those that we have quite a lot to learn. The coronation was a momentous event. Although the BBC started broadcasting in 1936, not many people had televisions. And in the months, in the two months up to the coronation, more television sets were bought than at any two-month period since then. In fact, more than half of the population, 27 million, watched the coronation on TV. They didn't have to choose which channel. There was only one channel, BBC One. ITV came in 1956. So people gathered in each other's homes to watch the coronation. And another 13 million listened, 11 million listened to it on the radio. But the significance of the event is not that a lot of people watched it or enjoyed the grandeur. The significance lies not in the display of symbols and the stunning robes, although they're not without their significance. The significance lies in the Queen's understanding of what she was committing herself to do. Every element of the service pointed in one direction, that she was vowing to serve her people under God. The Queen understood that her authority was not conferred by Parliament, nor inherited from her earthly father, but came from God, and it was to him that she would ultimately be accountable. The words of the service, the symbols, and the rituals of the coronation service were devised in AD 973, would you believe? They were designed to highlight the values that monarchs should seek to uphold, the kind of person they should seek to be, and the priorities of the heavenly king they would pledge themselves to serve. So she is to administer justice. The archbishop asks her at the very beginning of the service, will you, to your power, cause law and justice in mercy to be executed? Uh, in all your judgments, she replies, I will. As sovereign, she is also uh, entrusted to preserve and to protect the Christian gospel and the church. The archbishop says, will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel? Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain in the United Kingdom the Protestant Reformed religion established by law? And that's what the Church of England is actually meant to be, although we've not made it easy for her. But in turn, because the Protestant Reformed religion does permit freedom of conscience, freedom of worship, even if people choose to worship a distorted view of God or a wrong view of God, that under that tolerance, other faiths, other denominations are able to exercise their freedom of worship. And she says, all this I promise to do. 
in a venue. You just imagine, you know, sort of, if you could kind of rob everybody at a coronation, I reckon there's billions of jewellery there. I mean, there's one just in one of her bits which is probably worth 500 million quid. And it's at the end of a pole. And it's detachable. It can become a brooch. I mean, imagine walking around with a 500 million quid brooch. Anyway, but uh, <laughs> although you know, there, are, there are millions of pounds, probably a billion, I reckon, of, of um, pounds of jewellery in the place, we have the giving of the Bible. And the archbishop says these words. Our gracious queen, to keep your majesty ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing this world affords. You can see, uh, well, you can see there it is, it's the red one, and we'll pick out one or two of the other things that she... Um, she has. And then the moderator of the Church of Scotland continues in this presentation. He says to her of the Bible, here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. She's crowned with the St. Edward crown. And notice at the top of the crown there is a cross signifying that her rule is under Christ. It is derived authority. The centerpiece of the coronation regalia is named after Edward the Confessor, and it's placed on the monarch's head at the actual moment of crowning by the Archbishop of Canterbury. It's made of gold in 1661, as most of the uh, regalia comes from then the time of the restoration after the uh, rule by the Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell um, with Charles II. It weighs 2.23 kilograms. It's nearly five pounds. She swaps it for a lighter one when she leaves Westminster Abbey. And then on one of the, she has these two poles, they're scepters. On one of the scepters, which is the sovereign's scepter, she has, um, well, we've done the crown, yeah, sorry. This is the sovereign. This is where the Cullinan uh, diamond is. You know, donated, no doubt, by our kind South African friends. Of course, um, the, uh, the scepter originates from 1661, but they can put that thumping great diamond, which is the biggest ever discovered. As I said, it's worth, apparently, you couldn't really buy it, could you? and really trying to get rid of it if you stole it. So it's theoretically worth 500 million pounds, apparently. And again, it is the cross at the top of the scepter, which is the symbol of her rule. Then there is the orb, again. What's at the top? Receive this orb set under the cross, says the archbishop. And remember that the whole world is subject to the power and empire of Christ, our Redeemer. And then there are a number of swords which are in use on the day. 
the sword of spiritual justice, the sword of temporal justice, and the sword of mercy. All law is done in the Queen's name, whether it's acts, well, whether there are three legislative bodies in the country, there is the Houses of, House of Commons, the House of Lords, and the General Synod of the Church of England. They all enact, they all put up measures which become acts of Parliament. And uh, again, these swords date from the middle of the 17th century. And they pray, Hear our prayers, O Lord, we beseech thee, and so direct and support thy servant, Queen Elizabeth, that she may not bear the sword in vain, but may use it as the minister of God for the terror and punishment of evildoers and for the protection and encouragement of those that do well. There is, the middle one is a sword of mercy. It is blunt, and it's blunt for a reminder uh, to symbolize mercy tempering the sharpness of justice in the other two swords. And they pray, with this sword, do justice. Stop the growth of iniquity, protect the holy church of God, help and defend widows and orphans, restore the things that are gone to decay, maintain the things that are restored, punish and reform what is amiss, and confirm what is in good order. And then there's another scepter. It is the rod of equity and mercy. Again, you have the globe, then you have the cross, and then you have the dove. And the dove is, of course, representative of the Holy Spirit who guides the sovereign's actions. Receive the rod of equity and mercy. Be so merciful that you be not too remiss to execute justice, that you forget not mercy. Punish the wicked, protect and cherish the judge, and lead your people in the way wherein they should go. Now in Old Testament times, there was, a, it's a very poor picture and you'll realise why it is in a minute, in Old Testament times, for particular tasks of significance, such as being king, they would be anointed with oil as a sign of God's grace to give them the strength for that task. And that is true of Her Majesty. And there was one moment uh, in the ceremony that was not televised. It was considered too sacred to show as Handel's anthem, Zadok the priest, is sung, the symbols of the queen's status are removed. The crimson velvet robe, the diamond diadem, the coronation necklace. And then there she is in a simple white dress. And she looks like a bride, young, beautiful, and delicate, except that the dress is far less elaborate than her wedding gown. There is a ring, but there's no groom. Elizabeth is not giving herself to her husband, but to a people. At that point, the archbishop anoints her with holy oil and pours it onto her hands, her chest, and her head to show that she is being set apart to serve and love her people in all her actions, with all her heart, and with all her mind. In that commitment, she follows the example of Christ, 
who was also anointed. In fact, the word Christ means anointed. And set apart not to be served, but to serve. And in his case, to sacrifice his life so that we can live life that lasts forever. The royal biographer William Shawcross wrote, When Queen Elizabeth II was crowned in 1953, she found, like her mother before her, an almost sacrificial quality at the heart of the service. It was the moment when the holy oil was applied to her. Rather than her crowning with St. Edward's crown of solid gold, that was of supreme importance for the Queen. Indeed, it was the most solemn and important moment of her entire life. And then they pray. Who by anointing with oil didst of old make and consecrate kings, priests and prophets to teach and govern thy people Israel. Bless and sanctify thy chosen servant Elizabeth who by our office and ministry is now to be anointed with this oil. Grant unto this thy servant Elizabeth, our Queen, the spirit of wisdom and government, that being devoted unto thee with her whole heart, she may so wisely govern that in her time thy church may be in safety and Christian devotion may continue in peace, that so persevering in good works unto the end, she may by thy mercy come to thine everlasting kingdom. Now you've probably noticed that throughout the service there is a balance struck between justice and mercy, between what is um, called bodily and ghostly, by which they mean physical and spiritual, and a very strong sense that this life is not all there is. This life is to be a life of service, for her and for us, as it was for Christ, in obedience to God, relying on his strength, doing good and not evil. But it is not all that there is. There are frequent prayers for Her Majesty's salvation so that she might enjoy the next life. Let me just give you two examples. From her anointing, they pray, and after a long and glorious course of ruling a temporal kingdom, wisely, justly, and religiously, you may at last be made partakers, partaker of an eternal kingdom. Or at the acclamation, when uh, she is now the queen, she has her crown, she has her scepters, the trumpets are all um, full blast and the archbishop prays, um, God crown you with a crown of glory and righteousness, that having a right faith and manifold fruit of good works, you may obtain the crown of, ever, of, the, of an everlasting kingdom by the gift of him whose kingdom endureth forever. Amen. It is a gift. Sure, having received it, you should evidence it. You should show it in good works, but you cannot earn it. It is given. And who gives it? By the gift of him whose kingdom endureth forever. Our monarch, as, we, as we've seen, rules with justice and mercy, as does our God. 
If he were to act simply justly, we're doomed. But he acts out of mercy to those who, like the Queen, recognize their need for the forgiveness of God and are not too proud to request it. Jesus, God himself, paid the penalty of exclusion from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit when he was dying on the cross. And there God's justice was satisfied and he is in a position where he can give us the gift of salvation if we ask for it in penitence and faith. Let us pray. At the close of the coronation service, the Archbishop prays a prayer which we can equally make our own. Go before us, O Lord, in all our doings, with thy most gracious favour, and further us with thy continual help, that in all our works begun, continued and ended in thee, we may glorify thy holy name, and finally, by thy mercy, obtain everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.